welcome to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. In this podcast, we discuss mystical works of literature and how they relate to recovery. We hope you enjoy today's podcast episode. Okay, good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Tao of Our Understanding Podcast. I am Craig. Today we have with us Chris, Amy, Lou, and of course, Sensei Allison. Welcome, everybody. I hope everybody's doing well. Thank you. Buddy is having technical issues. He is powerless over his laptop. Today's discussion, which is going to be on the sixth verse of the Tao. Amy, do you have the, the reading in front of you? I do. Just when you're ready. So this is the sixth verse. The spirit that never dies is called the mysterious feminine. Although she becomes the whole universe, her immaculate purity is never lost. Although she assumes countless forms, her true identity remains intact. The gateway to the mysterious female is called the root of creation. Listen to her voice. Hear it echo through creation. Without fail, she reveals her presence. Without fail, she brings us to our own perfection. Although it is invisible, it endures. It will never end. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you. Let's stop the share. So, Sensei. Okay. Just some, just something I observe out of the Tao is it chops and changes from the masculine to the feminine. Is this something that we see through a Zen perspective as well? Does it jump between the the, the two? I think so, but um, I know this wasn't one of the questions. You, this wasn't one of the no. questions that was sent to you, so this is just just to try and catch you on the hop. Just. No, no, it's good. Uh, actually, he he did not send questions this time, but we said it'd be okay to just improvise and uh, spontaneously respond. Uh, how it shows up in Buddhism, if you look at the iconography, the paintings and sculptures and so forth, you'll see in the earliest uh, art that was associated with Buddhism, they didn't show Buddha himself. They showed an empty chair, like a, his seat. They showed his footprints. So I think they had a similar, not quite a taboo, but a, a reluctance to try to illustrate or, or create an image of Buddha, similar, as, similar, I think, to the prophet Muhammad. You know, they don't, I think they don't, you don't want to characterize this individual too much so that you don't create a situation where people can either misidentify with the characterization or not themselves identify with Buddha nature. So the sculpture started in Gandhara, which is part of the area that uh, I think the Taliban blew up some statues there. It was a big story in the news a year or two ago. Um, the sculptures, the faces, and the paintings as well, 
tend to look like the local population. So you would not see paintings or sculptures showing up in China that looked Indian. They look more like Chinese people and the, even the, the clothing and stuff that they would have on would be more in keeping with the local culture. And I think the message there was that, you know, Buddha's teaching is we are all Buddha. Uh, every, everybody has this Buddha nature, awakened, potential for awakening nature. And so Buddha is not Indian. Buddha fundamentally is not Chinese or Indian or Jap Japanese or American. Cannot be captured in a cultural bottle kind of thing. So, and, and further, the, the further extension of Buddha is all sentient beings, chickens, dogs, cats, and cows, everything represents, shares, shares in this Buddha nature, even inanimate objects, which is kind of a reach for us. But, but um, at the same, by the same token, the iconography, the figures, the statues, Whereas the pre-Buddhist statues and paintings and so forth in India were very sexualized, large busted, slim waist women. They had uh, the Hindu panoply of gods and goddesses and so forth were very voluptuous and uh, maybe a little bit like the Greeks um, where they had human characteristics, human nature and, and shared some of our the traits of quote human beings, mortal beings. Uh, but the Buddhist iconography, I think pretty quickly became androgynous in nature. When you look at some of these figures, you can't immediately tell whether they're trying to represent a male or a female. And uh, I think that's another testament to the idea that Buddha nature is not gendered. Uh, the original nature, consciousness itself, um, arising as sentient beings in the universe. One of my teachers, Okamura, she said, we human beings, we are the universe becoming conscious of itself. This is an ancient idea, probably Vedic and pre-Vedic and Hindu idea that at one time there was a singularity and there was no other. And so it intentionally separated into duality or two so that it could experience other kind of a weird idea, <laughs> but you could kind of, kind of get that. And then if you look at us, we, our genetic uh, code is uh, X and Y chromosomes. We all have some of both. None of us is exactly a hundred percent male versus a hundred percent female. Those two things are not really completely divided. Uh, the, the idea of rebirth, for instance, you could have been female in a past life. When I say you, it's in parentheses or, or quotation marks because Buddhism holds that there is no such self-existent you that transmigrates from life to life like reincarnation. It's more rebirth. It's more fuzzy logic. Past lives influence the present life. So, you know, some of these Buddhist principles or tenets or theories, if you will, can be used to explain things that are otherwise difficult to explain, like why people feel like they're a male in a female body or vice versa. They're 
female in a male body, uh, gen gender disparity and so forth could be to some degree rationalized by this idea of rebirth, that we all have past life experiences. They weren't us. They're not the same person. But there's some sort of karmic or um, remainder or carryover, according to this. It's a weird theory that I don't like talking about too much because it's a little bit mystical. But this chapter, chapter six, is certainly very mystical, talking about this female principle uh, who is, uh, it's understandable that, that a female principle or force would be recognized as the progenitor of creation because in, within the human race, we're mammals. And so the females bear the children. We know from studying biology that there are fish species that change gender, like the male fish, uh, and I can't remember what species it is, but uh, I think, uh, changes gender and, and has the eggs or vice versa. It's one way or the other. If you look into nature itself, it's, uh, it's almost like if, if there is a God, you know, God tried everything. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and I often imagine you could have a great uh, stand-up comic routine about the God's design committee deciding how are human beings going to reproduce, you know. <laughs> and all couldn't we can it just be like amoebas nice and clean they just split into two no has to be has to be a lot messier than that so this is a very mystical verse it's surprising to me a little bit my my uh impoverished understanding of Taoism but I think this may have something to do with Quan Yin in uh, China this sort of goddess, or what is in Buddhism called Bodhisattva of compassion, the mother goddess, or Kali. Kali was the goddess of creation in India and the goddess of destruction too. So that, that, that which brings us into this existence is that which destroys us ultimately. So it's, it's very interesting. Um, I don't know if that's any, any clarification for you, but in Buddhism, the gender thing is considered a kind of dual, dualism. Mm -hmm. And like all dualities, all binary pairs, male and female define each other in a sense. They're not exactly separate or competitive ideas, just like black and white or uh, dark and light, rather, and uh, hot and cold, form and emptiness, and so on. I know the, um, the the feminine is often referred to in this in this verse as the gateway, and the feminine always, like, like it says, that it's always up to the female to give birth. So the, um, the the feminine is always classed as the yep. all creation because all all life comes from from the females. Um, it's, it was just interesting what you were saying that God tried everything. And then he gave us women, so they would then sort it out <laughs> for us. That was more or less what. But I went down because they they genuinely tend to be a little bit more, um, a little bit more subtle and a little bit more compassionate and a little bit more forthcoming with ideas. Um, 
so I think that's 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 where I get the definition of the the feminine, the masculine. Um, the female um, in all in mammals are uh, similar to human beings, and uh, you know all the Yannick and phallic sim symbolism and art and cultures throughout the years have recognized, I think, that while you cannot completely separate the two, they definitely have complementary, uh, self-mutually defining, um, not exactly traits, but at least symbolically characteristics that we associate with feminism or fem fit the feminine the feminine that we do not associate with the masculine and that's been a source of as much trouble as, as much heat as, as, as and so forth as clarity and light unfortunately in in culture but we have we have uh, a woman female on board tonight I think she <laughs> we should defer to her to speak to this I um I was just thinking about um, trying not to go too with, too deep with my analysis of this and just the simplicity of females tend to be more emotional in nature and men do not. I, I don't want to stereotype or, or right, right. You know, call any of you men. I'm insensitive, but I think for me, this journey of, um, of the study of the Tao is, is really helping me to be in tune with the energies and the, and the feelings and the, the nature and, you know, all of the aspects of femininity. And so it's really nice to, to to be the only woman on this call right now um, with men who are seeking the same thing. You know, it, it kind of evens the playing field, you know, so much yep. of, yep. of stereotypes, right? Men are, are this way and women are this way. Um, but I think if, if everyone could could really embark on this journey of mm -hmm. seeking internally, um, you know, maybe the world would be kinder. Yeah. Do you think I it's think possible, it sorry, do you think it's anything to do with women being a little bit more compassionate naturally? Well, imagine what it's like to be pregnant and give birth. I mean, <laughs> that's got to teach you something. Makes you, I couldn't makes you even, think. Oh, go ahead, Chris. <laughs> well, it just it makes you think for nine months about the whole process yeah. for sure. Yeah. I I couldn't okay. even imagine being pregnant and giving birth until I was pregnant and gave birth. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And it still was anything that I thought it might be. Yes, it it could and I have two biological children. You know, it, it was some of those things, but it was so much more. So even trying to define what the experience right, was right. going to be was very limiting of what the experience was actually when it happened. 
And it's impossible for a man to know that. Impossible. Hmm. But uh, here it says, listen to her voice, hear it echo through creation and so forth. Without fail, she reveals her, reveals her presence. Remember, I think it's helpful to remember that we were once in the womb. Our first, some cultures, they count the nine months in the womb as your first year. So when you're born, you're already one year old. And so that would add a year to all of our lives, how we consider them. Uh, but imagine, remember what that had to be like. I don't know that we can really remember it. I think my personal theory is that being born is so traumatic that it, we, we all, it creates a kind of PTSD. So we have a kind of a post-traumatic stress uh, syndrome or disorder. We can't, it's too traumatic for us to even remember. Imagine uh, you're in the womb uh, as a fetus. You're, you've been there nine months, everything is developed. You've developed sensation. And this goes back to the 12 fold chain of causation in Buddhism. It starts there with consciousness arising out of ignorance. But remember the first thing that you hear is probably your mother's heartbeat, probably, right? I mean, you're, that's the loudest thing that you're closest to, or the blood rushing and like that. The, the first thing you see is the darkness of the womb and so forth. And remember, we, we don't even breathe in the womb. There's no, there's no breath until we come out into the cold world and they slap us on the butt and, and we cough out all the phlegm and got to be horrible you know it's got to be probably worse than dying <laughs> but then you're like a fish out of water and it's cold you know and then they bundle you up and they give you to your mother and they she holds you against her chest and then you can hear her heartbeat again and that's probably what calms you down and makes you understand that everything's okay so listen to her voice well that that would be her voice that would be the first thing you hear from, from your mother would be those sounds. You wouldn't feel any temperature in the womb because your temperature, body temperature, is the same as hers. Now, if she happened to be a crack addict or happened to smoke or, you know, do some other things, that you could certainly experience cravings as a, as a fetus that you don't, you don't know what they are. You probably feel hunger a little somewhat. I would imagine there's some sympathetic system between the infant and the and the mother when the food comes through the umbilical cord to the to the infant to the fetus. There's probably some sort of signal that goes back and forth there. But if you imagine, can remember what that's like, then I think you can see why you would certainly put the female first. The female would be your your world. The sperm is actually absorbed by and digested by the egg, which is <laughs> like a horrible thing to think of, right? But it's, if you look at spiders, they're the same thing. The female eats the male, <laughs> you know, to feed the to feed the baby. So it's very easy to see this as uh, the female is primary, has to be. From that, from that beginning perspective, you know what else? That's your whole. That's your whole reality. I think I may have shared this, but um, 
Ramakrishna, Sri Ramakrishna was a Hindu saint in the 1850s in Calcutta. He was Hindu, Christian, Buddhist. He was like one of these ecumenical guys, but he was frail and he would fall into trance states. Uh, very interesting story. There's a book, Sri Ramakrishna's his biography. And he, he had visions. And one he described, as I said before, that which brings us into creation is that which, that which eventually absorbs us or is the, is the, uh, the seed of our destruction, you could say. I mean, aging, birth, aging, sickness and death are the four cardinal points of suffering in Buddhism, meaning any sentient being comes into birth in some form, goes through a process of aging right from the get-go. It never, never really starts and never stops. And possible sickness, diseases, being attacked by other organisms, in other words, and gradual decay and deterioration of the, of the physical body, and finally death. So he, he had this vision of Mother Kali, who is, again, in their panoply, the goddess of creation and destruction. And, she, and I may have told this before, so uh, stop me if you've heard this. She was, uh, he saw her rising out of the river Ganges as a beautiful young woman, and she becomes pregnant and gives birth to a child. This is all one continuous sort of vision flowing the way he described it. And then she turns into a monster and devours the baby. So this was his sort of horrific vision of what it is to, to be alive, to be born. And that the very thing that brings you into this existence, not specifically your mother, <laughs> but the very life force that's being spoken of in this verse as female, the very thing that brings you into this existence is what takes you out of it. And in Buddhism, that's seen as very natural. Uh, this year's garden has to give way and become compost for next year's garden. Uh, this whole generation has to die out in order to make room for the next generation. So it seemed to be a natural cycling. I've uh, One of my clever comments is the, the universe is the greatest remix on record. Nothing is created new. Nothing is taken away from it, but it's just remixed again and again and again. So each life is like that personally. And this female force, which would be Mother Kali in Hinduism, as I understand it, um, would be the symbol of that. In Buddhism, I guess Kuan Yin would be the closest to this female principle, Kanon or Kuan Yin. The spirit that never dies, you know, some of the language we have to attribute to the translator in the original, they may not have had these connotations. This starts to sound very holy, holy, very, uh, you know, like a goddess or religious idea. I'm not sure that that's appropriate for Taoism. Yeah, I was going to ask you, Sensei, how do we, because we have a feminine side and a uh, masculine side, all of us do. How, how does the feminine side fit into um, a Buddhist perspective? Because I think part of this is applying that feminine side 
in everyone's life. Uh, and what, what would that mean in Buddhism? Is there any addressing of that? Yeah, as I mentioned, uh, the iconography shows very androgynous type of figures that indicate that the Buddha nature, so-called, is not either feminine nor masculine, but is both. And, you know, biology says we, have the X, we all have the X and Y chromosomes and so forth. So where it would play out in your practice in Zen would be more that it's not exactly as cliche as getting in touch with your feminine side or getting in touch with your masculine side, but it would be more, uh, oh, we're back. Good. Welcome back. It would be more a realization in your meditation, for instance, that all of the attributes that you can list about yourself, uh, being white, being male, being six foot tall, five foot tall, brown eyes, blue eyes, six year, 60 years old, six years old, whatever it happens to be, all of the characteristics that you can name to identify yourself and differentiate yourself from another person sitting next to you are considered uh, basically circumstantial. That is, they're not central. They're, they are um, important. Uh, I'm not you, you're not me. You know, we are different from each other, but the sameness is considered more important in Buddhism. And the same is true between men and women. The, the, the fact that someone is a male or someone is a female is less important than that we're both human or, or you know, whatever category you want to use. Uh, the the uh, unifying category. And so if we emphasize the difference over sameness all the time, then we have the many, the multiplicity of everything. If we emphasize the sameness, then we have the unity. That doesn't mean we're all alike. That doesn't mean, you know, it's not a kumbaya kind of statement. It's more just just recognition of the fact that I don't give too much importance to the fact that I'm a male or masculine or, you know, a man, not a woman and so forth. Uh, these days, you're, you have to be very careful about even the language you use because people are sensitive to this issue. Uh, that, to my way of thinking, is not as dispositive or determinative as um, other facts of existence. The, the main fact in Buddhism is that you are alive as a human being. You have a certain consciousness and you don't want to waste this opportunity. It's cons- even in spite of 8 billion and counting population boom or explosion, whatever you want to call it, human birth is considered rare in Buddhism and an opportunity to wake up. And so not to be squandered. So feminism, masculinism, or male dominance, et cetera, all of these kinds of what are treated as social issues become very personal when they get in your way of, of realizing Buddha nature. You can say Buddha, Buddha simply means awake, and wake, waking up to the truth is considered to be 
transcendent that is transcending your limitations as how you self-identify. So in Buddhism, we say spit when you say Buddha. We don't identify as Buddhists. It's not a self-identity issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with a person saying I'm a Christian. It means they're they're saying I'm not Jewish or I'm not a Muslim or something. And it's a clarification. But if that for you individually becomes a big point of your of your existence and then we think it's a kind of confusion. It's like a category error. We, we say, we don't know what we are really. You can throw all kinds of labels at it. Uh, the religious labels, the biological labels, et cetera, et cetera. But nothing really captures it. And so the so-called Buddha nature, it means waking up to that fact as, and, and by implication, waking up to all of the causes, conditions of your existence. One of which is that you happen to be male, you happen to be female. So it's not exactly unimportant, but it's, it's not central to the truth of your identity. And, and Buddhism is very leery of self-identity, identifying even with the Buddha, Dogen, Master Dogen, 19, 13th century Japan said, sitting in meditation, he said, uh, think neither good nor evil, right or wrong, thus um, stopping the functions of your mind, meaning the ordinary natural functions of your thinking mind, give up even the idea of becoming a Buddha. In other words, don't substitute another goal or objective or self-identity for the one you're trying to transcend and trying to get beyond the limitations of, of, of it. So when we say spit, when you say Buddha, it's not being disrespectful. It's just saying it, that can't capture the reality. Mm-hmm. Just saying that we're not human beings, we're Buddha. <laughs> that doesn't do anything. That substitutes one label for another, right? When you're asked about, uh, you mentioned goals there. Uh, when you're asked about goals, uh, I was I was on a podcast recently. Where we were talking about recovery goals for the year and what was our goals in recovery. How, how do you approach goals as as uh, from a Zen perspective? Uh, if everything's as it should be, then why do I do I really want? Everything is not as it should be. Okay. Uh, all of the trouble in the world is caused by human beings out of ignorance. And so what's, what's really wrong is that people are confused and stupid and lazy and you know, all the characteristics you recognize in yourself. And that's where all the trouble comes from. Now, may all beings be happy is one of the poems in Buddhism, but it means happy with reality as it is. Not, not that we're, we can change reality so that there is no aging, sickness, death, and so forth. That's not possible according to Buddhism. So a goal or objective would, would be the simplest way I can think of would be simply to wake up to the truth, to wake up, you know. And Buddhism holds that we are, we are all awake to a degree. We were asleep last night. We woke up this morning. We know the difference. 
but we're still asleep to a large degree. And it's possible, according to Buddhism, to wake up and we will know the difference. So other goals, uh, Dogen's Vow is a long, rather long, not real long poem, but a poem that starts out, it says, uh, we vow with all being, and it kind of explains the context of why we practice Zen uh, in the social sense. We vow with all beings from this life on throughout countless lives, there's the rebirth principle, to hear the true Dharma, to hear the true Dharma, that upon hearing it, no doubt will arise in us, nor will we lack in faith. That upon meeting it, the great earth with all beings together will attain the Buddha way, meaning the awakened will wake up. So that's a big vow. Uh, it's all encompassing. But again, it's just to hear the true Dharma instead of hearing a conf you know, confusion and our own ideas. Uh, so the vows in Buddhism are expressed like that, very global kind of things, but uh, objectives and goals are kind of set in that context. The Bodhisattva vow is the overarching vow, vow in Buddhism, and it's to help all others before oneself. Yeah. But current tropes and memes and stuff coming out of the COVID virus pandemic and all, this is in the press all the time. The way to help yourself in this situation is to help others. When you start helping others, it starts helping you. So it's putting the shoe on the other foot kind of thing. Buddhism comes from that same perspective. I, I, I may not be able to do much about my own ignorance, but I can try and I can try to help others do something about their own ignorance. This is why we rely on teaching meditation because it's not me telling you what to think. It's, just showing you how to become independent thinker. <laughs> yeah, you know, that, that reminded me of, our, I'm sorry, our conversation the other night uh, in the book study about suffering. This reminds me a little bit of that in that the whole issue with suffering is not that we're going to uh, be free of pain or any kind of issues. It's the uh, attachment to the pain. It's the attachment that we can be free of. And your own opinion that it's, that it's bad somehow and wrong and unnatural, et cetera, et cetera. Right. The, attach, the, the attachments that get in the way in Buddhism are attachments to our own opinion of things. Yeah. yeah. So we hope, we hope to see through that, through our, through our meditative practice, which kind of full stop, it reduces everything down to direct awareness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the faith or the theory or the hope is that then, uh, like Buddha, like all the other ancestors, China, Japan, and so forth, you will come to this same awakening. Is compassion considered a feminine trait or is, that a, or is it not masculine or feminine? Or Compassion actually means, literally, means suffer with. And I think you can certainly say that women are, in most cultures, are more empathic. And they feel the suffering of others more, more intensely, and probably because of the suffering of childbirth and, and you know, taking care of the children, all the things they have to go through. Uh, but I don't think that's really compassion 
uh, we all suffer. We all we are all compassionate in that we all uh, suffer together. Mm-hmm. We are we are suffering with each other. We're all in the same boat. Mm-hmm. Then um, you can practice compassionate behavior, which is thought of as a more active stance, where you try to do no harm. You know the precepts: do good, do only good, do good for others. Those are the mother precepts. And if you look at uh, the role of women in biology and the role of women in society, it's almost like they don't have a choice. You know, (laughs) I'm sorry, Amy. I don't mean to, (laughs) I don't mean to speak for women because as I said, I have no idea. I may have been a female in a past life, but I don't remember it. (laughs) That's good sensei. Thank you. Um, any other questions for Sensei Craig? Were there anything that we left out? I appreciate you jumping in for me. No, it's, it's, it's fine. I was, I was just, um, I, th- I think we covered the main things was, was to identify the, the, the masculine and the feminine. Uh, and I like to question on the compassion. I like the, I like the explanation of suffering with. I hadn't actually thought about it um, that way. I always, I always saw compassion as not so much feeling sorry for somebody, but along that along that vein, um, not not as not not as being empathetic with somebody, but kind of more like feeling sorry for for somebody. I I didn't realise that suffering with was was yeah. a little translation yeah. of that. So you know, that's the problem that's with feeling sorry about. for somebody. There are a lot of problems with it. One one is that you're kind of exempting yourself from the situation. It's like if somebody's on the deathbed and you're not, you feel sorry for them, but your turn is coming. Yeah. yeah. So that's kind of a phony, you know, there's something, there's something unself-aware about that. It's, it's almost coming across as I'm sorry that you're feeling that bad. You know, it's, it's, yeah. taking, it's, it's taking me right out of it. I'm pushing everything back onto you so I can just yeah, as if you're not in the same boat, you know. Yeah, you are. absolutely. Yeah, and addiction is like that. Uh, in Buddhism, we think of addiction as life is addictive. We're all addicts. We're addicted to life. You know, uh, an addictive substance is said to cause a significant degree of discomfort when withdrawn. Think about air. You know, it takes about five minutes. Think about water. You know, takes a little longer food. So they can all be defined as addictive substances. And uh, addiction to power, addiction to prestige, feelings of superiority. And that's where the unfortunate connotations around compassion come in. I'm compassionate to you. You know, I'm being charitable to you. It's not that way in Buddhism. When the monks would go out, monks and nuns, and do baking, they were they were being compassionate to the villagers because the this is the only way the villagers could really support the the work of Buddhism. The villagers couldn't, for whatever reason, or wouldn't leave house and home and go become a monk or a nun. So they'd go around even even when the temple was wealthier than the village, they would still go out with their baking bowls. So it's, 
you know, the flip-flop, 180 degrees different, the way we think of homelessness, for instance, begging, charity, it's all reversed in Buddhism. Any Anything else, guys? Sensei Elliston mentioned earlier a comment about the um, the nature of this translation as it being religious. Did I catch that right? It seems to be because he's speaking of a spirit and things of that nature. It seems to have connotations of deism or panoply of gods and spirits and so forth. Hmm. The other one, by the way, doesn't have that as much. I think well, it might I, be helpful to read the other one, which I'd be happy to do. Yeah, I put the, in chat the English translation, I guess, of the sixth verse, too, because it's much smaller. It struck me that it was very small, so that's why I spoke up. Well, the one, the one that he has in, uh, in the Dyson book is br uh, briefer, but listen to this one. It says, endlessly creating, endlessly pulsating, the spirit of the valley never dies. She is called the hidden creator. Although she becomes the whole universe, her immaculate purity is never lost. Although she assumes countless forms, her true identity remains intact. Whether we see or don't see, whatever exists or doesn't exist is nothing but the creation of this supreme power. Tao is limitless, unborn, eternal, it can only be reached through the hidden creator. She is the very face of the absolute, the gate to the source of all things eternal. Listen to her voice. Hear it echo through creation. Without fail, she reveals her presence. Without fail, she brings us to our own perfection. So to my way of thinking, that's that's less personal spiritual personal God kind of thing, uh, goddesses and so forth, and more the Tao as, the, as feminine. The Tao being kind of the neutral way, but the way I like to use she in my written text is I'll put S forward slash H-E. So it's, it works for either pronoun uh, and what that indicates, or what I, I mean that to indicate, is that whether it's male or female in the human sense that we mean is not what he is not what they're saying here. It's more like yin yang. You don't have yin without yang, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Chris. Well, probably because these were mostly men writing this, <laughs> talking about it. Right. That's probably. The reason that on this in this verse they felt they they really had to sort of cover this because you know these were not slackers these guys were not probably what we would call misogynists you know the Taoist uh, the these at least the, the people who could compose something like this had to be pretty pretty sensitive and have a pretty well-rounded view of reality. And so the very fact that they they took it upon themselves to try to write something like this says to me that they they're recognizing that the the principle of creation is really neither male nor female. But if you had to choose, it would be female, definitely. 
Well, there's female names of uh, names of God. Uh, there's a female name of God that uh, in uh, Judaism, too. Uh, I forget. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I forget the one, but there one of the names of God is female, at least one. Yeah, and the Imam on the uh, World Peace panel that I joined monthly out of South Korea, he said in Islam, God is really neither male nor female. Both, both, both are neither, you know, simultaneously. It helps when they don't have an icon of their higher power. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think Buddhism would embrace the idea of a higher power. Obviously, we didn't create this, right? Mm -hmm. So something, something is creating it. It's it's ongoing. You know, it's not once and forever. It's a continuous process. And we're not creating it. Yeah. Or part of us is. Well, we're, we're part of the creation. And so, yeah. Hmm. Our, 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 the action that we take changes it. Yeah. But hmm. probably not in very significant ways. No. <laughs> <laughs> Could we all be cells in this great body of a higher power? It's possible. Mm. That's, That's kind of the way we look at it. Like yeah. Ants yeah. in the ants in the hive, you know. Yes. High mentality. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's good. Anything I else, guys? You, did I send you the model of personal, social, natural, yeah. universal, the spheres? Yes. If you think of that. The influences coming in from those outer spheres are very profound and strong. And COVID virus is an example. Uh, you know, the, the strength of the vectors coming in from outer into our personal sphere. But what we send out from our personal sphere into the, even the social sphere, and it's not very profound. I mean, we, you know, atomic bombs can affect the social sphere profoundly. Unfortunately, we have this situation very few people can cause a lot of people damage. But as you go into nature, we might be able to destroy the ability of the earth to support human life or even a lot of animal life. But we're not going to destroy the planet, right? And when you go further beyond the planet into the solar system, the universal, not much that we can do is going to affect it. So it's a diminishing thing as you go out. But what is it coming in, man? Incoming, you know, here it comes, COVID. Yeah. Power, powerful. That's good, guys. Thank you. Any closing comments? Thank you very much. This has been great. Appreciate it. Thank you, Sensei. We appreciate it, sir. <laughs> these these are certainly certainly getting to be the, the highlights of my meetings, just getting together and, and chatting about these. It's, you know, it just throws a completely new perspective on it. It's just so enlightening. So thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate mm -hmm. it. I yeah. think Taoism and Buddhism, or Zen at least, are very, very similar. In fact, when Zen came from India, it changed as it moved through China, and it picked up Taoism as part of it. That's why it's easy for me to talk about it from a Zen perspective, I think. Mm -hmm. puts, a, puts another angle on it for us. Thank you. Yeah. Well, guys, everyone have a great week. We will see you next week. Super. Bye-bye. I'm going to put in a plug. My book comes out February 28th. I'll put a link in the show notes for you, Sensei. Mine's on order. I'm looking forward to it. On Facebook? 
Now I'll put it. In, I'll put it in the Facebook group and in the notes for the podcast. Okay, it's oh. available on Amazon for pre-order. It's called the Original Frontier. The the, okay. the, uh, the idea of the you know the American ideal of the frontier, being Buddha entered the original frontier of mind, and it's there waiting for us to explore it. That cool. kind of idea. Cool. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Have a great week. You too. Hello, this is Buddy C. I wanted to make you aware of several recovery-related resources that I've posted in the episode description. These resources include a list of recovery podcasts, a free sober meditation app, daily recovery email, shared Google recovery calendars. Hope you put some of these resources to use and have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends in recovery.